We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. So we are certainly, certainly thrilled to be able to get started tonight. We've been walking through history, and we have been walking through history at a fast clip. Um, have any of you that have, have walked with us over the past several weeks, if you're a guest, this may be your very first time you've ever been here on Wednesday night, we're thrilled that you're here. But for those of you that have been journeying with us on Wednesday nights and have been here, have any of you learned anything about church history, about the, the, the first thousand years almost of church history? I've learned a lot about church history. Um, it has been really incredible for me. Uh, and also one of the things I think that has been so helpful for me, and I hope you've seen this as well, is I'm starting to, a little bit better than I have before, been able to piece things together. I mentioned to you that I think one of our, our issues that we have with our knowledge of the Bible is not just not knowing the Bible stories, but it's being able to string the Bible stories together. If someone were to ask you right now to tell the story of the Bible in five minutes or less, could you do it? Tell the story of the Bible in five minutes or less. That's a great homework assignment. How would we tell it in broad strokes? You think, well, there'd be no way. I didn't say cover every detail of the Bible in five minutes, but tell the story of the Bible. Could we tell the redemptive story of Scripture in big, broad strokes so that we could understand a little better how all of the smaller stories fit into the big picture? As we're walking through history right now, obviously we're not going to be able to cover every bit of minutia. Uh, we're not given tests. There's no papers that are due with this. And my prayer is not that you would remember every date or every name or the name of every council. That's not what we're trying to do here. But what I do hope and pray is that as we've walked through this, you would be able to see some of the big movements in history and how some of those things affect us now and how they've affected things in the past. So I think it's tonight, especially, you're going to see some things from the 9th and 10th century that are really going to jump out because some of the things, and this is really incredible to me, some of the things that have been debated that were debated 1,100 years ago are still being debated. There are things that are still issues in the church. You would think that maybe we had worked some of those things out, and thank God we have worked a few out, but you're going to see tonight that there are still some issues that we face with some of those things. So as we jump right in, we're going to be talking about the 9th and 10th centuries. Um, now, I had somebody ask a question the other day, and, and I don't want to insult anybody's intelligence, but when we say 9th and 10th century, do you know we're talking about the 800s and 900s? Because the first century was 0 to 100. So when you think about the actual years, the 9th century would be from year 800 to year 900, and then the 10th century would be from year 900 to year 1000. So as we move through this, we're talking about big, broad strokes covering massive numbers of years. And we saw that in the 9th century, a theological dispute arose between the church regarding the relationship of the Trinity. But what it became more about was a power struggle to establish the supremacy of the Pope over all of Christendom. Now, we need to talk about that because over the next thousand years of church history, that is going to be a theme that you're going to see over and over and over again. Not just about the Pope and the Catholic Church. We've got to spend some time talking about that but about power struggles within the church. In fact, most of what we're going to study that arises as problems in the church comes because 
well, there's a phrase, and I think most of you can complete it. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, absolutely. And so the church, because they became an authority, and we talked about last week how they rose up, and actually the church ended up having state powers. The church in many centuries when there was a decline in government, the church rose up, and the church actually had more power than the state in some instances. In many centuries and in many places, the church became the dominant power, the leading influence, the number one land acquirer, the number one, they, they, they raised more money. So when people rose up within the church, church, it became a power grab within the church. And so what ends up happening is the church begins to get corrupted because the power of the church begins to get to the church's head. And when leadership gets corrupted, it happens very quickly when you have an ignorant populace. Now, when I say the word ignorant, sometimes we use that word to insult people and it can be an insult. But what I mean by the word ignorant is that people that do not know any better, they can't read. They don't read for themselves. They aren't able to study for themselves. At this point, they don't have their own copies of the Bible. So what happens is they believe whatever they're told at church because the guy who was wearing the hat said so. The guy who they gave the robe said so. Do you think that's still an issue today? If you don't, you're missing it. There are huge denominations of people from very small rural places to massive megachurches, from small Baptist churches to the Roman Catholic Church that have fallen victim to people not understanding that the number one, the number one authority is not the pastor. It is not the ruler. It's not the pope. That the number one authority is God himself, but if I claim to be a mouthpiece for God and you're ignorant of the word and all you have to do is take my word for it, then all of a sudden we have men claiming to be apostles. Now this still happens today. We still have churches that claim apostolic authority. Well, what the problem with that causes is that now I've claimed the same authority for myself as the word of God. So when the pastor then declares it, if you don't know what the word of God says, you have to accept it. That's what began to happen inside the church. And it began to infest, especially when the person who is corrupting also is ignorant. I have seen in my lifetime, and this is just in my 20 years of ministry. I don't know why we've gotten to a place where we've celebrated ignorance. I can remember, I'll tell you about a conversation that I had years ago. I hadn't even started seminary yet, the school. I, I served in a, in a town called seminary at a place called seminary. I lived in a town called seminary, and then I went to school in a seminary in New Orleans. It was all very confusing. <laughs> but I can remember serving this church, and, and I'd been hired there as the youth minister, and I'd gone up, and there was a, one of these pastor's meetings and, um, and so I'd been invited to go. I was a youth minister at the time. There were those six or eight pastors that were sitting at this cafe, and we were eating, and I was 21, 22 years old. I was young. And there was a guy that was sitting there eating chicken beside me, and he said, uh, you about to go down to that seminary? I said, yes, sir. He said, you just going to let them mess you up, huh? And I just said, I didn't know what else to say. I said, well, I've been messed up for a long time. I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe they'll straighten some things out. 
And I had never heard that before. I, I, it it kind of threw me for a loop. Like, what is he talking about? You're going to let that seminary mess you up. And I have realized over time that there seems to be, not just in Southern culture, but across the board now, um, that we have applauded people in their ignorance. In fact, we've told people things like this, oh, don't worry about it, just let the Spirit lead you. Well, that's great if it was the Spirit, but if it's ignorance for the sake of ignorance, then what happens is not only do you have an ignorant people that are being led, but you have ignorant people that are leading because they haven't dedicated themselves to the study of the word, they haven't shown themselves approved, they haven't correctly handled the word of truth, and now what happens a generation later? Now you have people that are surrendering to the ministry that were under ignorant people, and so you have ignorant people that have been led by ignorant people that are going to lead more ignorant people. You go about two generations for that, and nobody's ever known anybody that wasn't ignorant. That's a dangerous place for the church to be. And the church found themselves in that situation and so it was during this time that a, that a very dangerous doctrine arose and you see it as the next point that you see there a doctrine arose inside the church and it's the doctrine of transubstantiation I'm trying to give you all a $5 word every time you come uh, every time you show up I want you to have a $5 word so your $5 word for the night is transubstantiation if you want to act like you have got a big theological word that's the one. Now, why would transubstantiation, let me just, let, let's define it and then let's scale back a minute. The doctrine of transubstantiation, and by the way, there are many people that still believe in the doctrine of transubstantiation. The doctrine of transubstantiation means that you do not believe that the Lord's Supper or communion is symbolic. You believe that the Lord's Supper actually conveys grace. Now, how would it do that? Because you believe that the moment you eat the cracker, that it actually becomes the body of Jesus. And that when you drink the wine or the grape juice, that it actually becomes the blood of Jesus. So that you are actually ingesting Jesus' body and drinking Jesus' blood. So you are taking communion not to symbolize the grace that's been bestowed on you, not to symbolize the salvation you have, not to symbolize the broken body of Jesus, not to symbolize the spilled blood of Jesus. You're taking communion to actually save you, that you believe that you are actually becoming grace-filled by the act of taking communion. You say, people don't still believe that today, do they? That's the Roman Catholic Church. That's, that's why you should never ever take communion if you don't know what, what's being offered to you. I hadn't been here any length of time. And I got into a big debate with a bunch of pastors over here because they wanted to have a community service. And I said, will y'all be involved? I said, sure, we'll be involved. We're going to go to the college. They said, we want to have the Lord's Supper. I said, then we're not coming. And I was 26 years old. I said, we're not coming. I said, we'll come, but we're not, I'm, not, I'm not leading my people to take the Lord's Supper. Oh, well, why not? And I said, well, there's people there that are going to believe that that's very much different than what we teach that the Lord's Supper. And this was the answer I got. Well, just let it mean to what it, anything to anybody that they want it to mean. You just let it mean to you what you want it to mean, and we'll let it mean to us what you want it to mean, and we just won't define it. Ignorant people leading ignorant people gets ignorant results. And when we think about this doctrine of transubstantiation, this consecration of the communion wine and change the elements into the flesh and blood of Christ. So if that's the case, 
then why do you think that a priest could use that or a preacher could use that to usurp power? If I'm the one that decides whether you get communion or not and you need communion to save you, well, all of a sudden, aren't I pretty important? Because if I decide not to give you communion, you're not saved anymore. Because by that doctrine, you need to take communion to receive grace. Well, if you tell a man long enough that he is the deciding factor upon whether or not somebody receives grace or receives salvation, guess what? That man will eventually believe it. You tell somebody something long enough and the church began to get corrupted over this. And so, thank the Lord, Augustine had already written. We talked about Augustine before. And his writings continued to make an impact by pointing to people to Scripture's clear teaching that salvation is a free gift and cannot be earned. It cannot be bought. It cannot be paid for. It cannot be eaten. It cannot be drunk. It is only given by the grace of God. So anything works-based, whether it's communion, baptism, anything else, we know that it is a direct violation of the clear teachings of Scripture. We see that coming up over and over again. Yet despite all of these issues, there were a couple of brothers that, that were there in the ninth century from Thessalonica. I put them in here because what are we studying right now on Sundays? Anybody know? Yay, good, absolutely. We're studying Thessalonians. So from that church um, arose, even though it was 10 centuries later, these guys named Cyril and Methodius, and they're the ones that actually took the gospel to Russia, and the Christian churches that are even in Russia today can tra trace back to the evangelistic effort of these two guys. You say, well, that seems like an obscure fact to put in the middle of all of this church history. Why are we talking about Cyril, Cyril and Methodius? Here's why. Because even in the seeming darkest times of the church, God is still moving. And God is still using people. And I think we always need to highlight that. And we need to remember that in the present day. Even when things seem terrible, guess what? God's using people and God's calling people and God's changing lives. And sometimes we get so negative that we refuse to see that God, the light of the gospel hasn't gone out, even amidst all of this heresy that we've walked through and talked about. So let's move quickly on to the 10th century. It ushered in what is known as the Dark Ages, it was called the Dark Ages because empires were beginning to crumble. Roman Empire specifically, the balance of power was shifting toward the church. Now, if you just read that, wouldn't that seem like a good thing? The balance of power was shifting towards the church. Why? Empires are falling apart. Something's got to go to power in its place. The church is the one that rose to power. Well, we've kind of already showed our cards on that. Because while the church's power is increasing, so is what is called nominalism. What is nominalism? Nominalism is people that are uncommitted, undiscipled, and are Christian in name only. Now, that was only a problem in the 10th century, right? We don't have that issue today, do we? People that claim to be Christian but aren't involved in church. I'll tell you what broke, has broken my heart over the past three months. Um, some things I still do by paper. I, I, I like, you know, I'm old school like that sometimes. And I've mentioned to you before that I'll take our church rolls, print them out on paper, and I just try to never go more than a few months without 
at least reading the names of the people that go to our church. Just to keep people before me, to think about things. Sometimes it jogs a memory about someone. Sometimes I think I need to check on that person, whatever that is. But it's not, a, it's not some serious discipline. It's just sitting back reading names. And do you know I've been the pastor here for 17 years and there are people, a lot of people on our roll that I don't have a clue who they are? I don't know. And then there's people who I do know who they are. And I'm going, what happened to those people? Why don't they ever show up? I'm telling you, there's a lot of people that are going to show up one day and they're going to be standing at heaven's door and the Lord's going to ask them, why should I let you in? And they're going to say, well, I was a member at First Baptist Summit. And he's going to tell them, well, you didn't come there and you're not coming here. And it's not because of their church attendance, but church attendance obviously is one of the indicators of whether or not we're living out our faith. So nominalism, when the church grows, when the church even in power, what can actually happen is this struggle um, that was taking place on the, the outside led to neglecting faith on the inside. And this power and this corruption began to take place in the church. Because if the church leadership becomes increasingly more interested in how can I advance myself outside of the church? How can I get more fame for myself, more money for myself, more power for myself, more influence for myself, more worldly success? Well, do you think that adds or detracts from the gospel? So that has nothing. We're not dealing with that today. I'm going to tell you what. I think one of the dangerous trends that we see in, in our modern church era is the rise of the megachurch. Now, let me share that with you. A church is not bad because it is large. That is not what I'm telling you. A church is not evil because there are more people going to it. But when you elevate a man to the status of celebrity, then you have invited him to fall because, because of what comes with that is not only the power, but the fame and the notoriety and the unapproachability. And as I have begun watching how some of this has gone on, is it any wonder that we see people falling left and right and you turn on, it seems like every time you turn on the television or get a news report, you hear about one of these mega church pastors that something's gone on with. And one of the reasons I truly believe is we're no different than they were a thousand years ago. When you end up feeding the celebrity of a person and the value of the pastor becomes the same value as the Kardashians, that's an odd place for the church to be in. That the church, that the pastor wants to be known and wants to be as hip and wants to be as cool and wants to be as relevant and wants to be as popular and wants to be as wealthy and wants to have as much influence as a pop star, there's something inherently unbiblical about that. And yet, our culture, because we love the superstar, we love the fame, we love that, we go to, we actually are part of the problem. We feed that. And so what we see now is a, is a result of what the church has always struggled with. And as the church increasingly cared less for the things of God, it produced ministers, we talked about this, who were ignorant of the gospel. So the decay increases exponentially. And Vikings and Muslims began to sweep in, and the church provided no spiritual direction. So the Roman Empire is divided. 
the church divides, the popes of Rome found themselves in the position to take power into their own hands. And when they took power into their own hands, we see the corruption begins to go crazy. When, the, when there is a vacuum of the gospel, apostasy will grow like kudzu. Think about it for just a moment. People are going to believe something. And how many of you know people that believe some stupid things? Wild things, silly things, evil things, demonic things. In a vacuum where the gospel is not held on to and not preached and not taught. I believe one of the reasons that you see the rise of the Muslim empire, if you saw the rise of Islam, is because of a vacuum of the gospel. The church was derelict in its duties. We talked about last week. They were debating haircuts when Muhammad was preaching his own version of his news, and it began to grow and grow and grow. Um, the church today still battles paganism, the temptation to worldly success, People say all the time that we are living in a dark age and the church's challenge is to respond with the light of the gospel. We can't trade our witness to become involved in worldly concerns. It's one of the things I think is really, really important. We've talked about the religious right and the moral majority of the 1980s and all things that went with that. But even today, what I see that I think is the biggest plague is that we now live in an era, I mentioned this cultural superstardom that it seems like that, that's been fed. But what we're dealing with because of that is now a church that wants to be relevant. You hear, you hear that word all the time? We want to be relevant to the culture. We want to not offend the culture. We want to be one with the culture. We want our music to sound like the culture. We want our light show to sound, to look like the culture. We want our v-neck t-shirts to look like the culture looks and our tennis shoes and all the things like that because the goal now of the church is let's look like the world so we won't offend the world so when the world comes to us they'll want to be a part of us let that sink in for just a moment they're going to think you're posers they're not going to love you and think you're so hip. They're going to think you're a poser because you are. And all of this trying to be relevant, you don't have to try to be relevant. We have to try to be biblical. I realized real early on that I couldn't keep changing the style of my jeans. Well, I just, you said, what are you talking about? I remember Brooke and I being somewhere one time and I was like, I mean, I, I'm kind of mid-30s, and so, you know, I've been out of college long enough now that kind of I felt like my fashion sense had probably, you know, wasn't what it should be, and I'm seeing all these, you know, younger guys, and, and you know, they're wearing glasses whether they need them or not, like little square ones, you know, and, and you know, and, and they've got, like, shoes that are pointed at the toes, and, and then, you know, I started seeing these jeans that, you know, I couldn't tell whether they were denim or spandex, and they're wearing those, and, you know, got... Got V-neck, little bitty, little bitty shirts. I, 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 you know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I need a new look. Need a new look. Be looking hip when I'm gonna look fresh when I show up church Sunday. So we go and I'm looking at all this garbage. 
And I'll just be honest with you. I mean, I grew up, I mean, I grew up in the day like, you know, I mean, about what I'm wearing right now. I mean, a polo shirt was kind of the deal. I mean, I had some Timberlands that I wore out. If you remember what I, if any of you know, Timberland hiking boots, I mean, wore, wore those out. So I kind of, I've had my style kind of going for a while. And I'm looking at all this stuff and I just realized, just it hit me all of a sudden, how, how, how far do you have to go? How cool do you have to get? How relevant do you have to be? And at some point, we've got to realize at a church, our job is not to look like the world so the world will like us. Our job is to offend the world. Oh, no, we're not supposed to be offensive, absolutely. You're a sinner and you're hellbound. You're a hater of God. And God is not just going to annihilate you. He's going to place you under his wrath for all of eternity. God doesn't like your little glasses and he's not crazy about your jeans. And they're going to burn in hell like everything else. Now, is that the message that we want to put out? Yeah. Yeah. And here's why. The gospel's offensive. At some point, you had to wrestle with the fact that you were a sinner, that you had to be saved by grace. And were it not for the gift of God, you'd be lost. It's not our job to be hip. It's not our job to be cool. It's not our job to look like the world. It's our job to be salt and light. It's our job to be aliens and strangers. And it's our job not for people to say, boy, I sure think they look exactly like the rest of the world looks. Let's go be a part of that. It's for them to look and say, they don't look anything like what the world looks like. Let me go be a part of that. That's what the church is called to. And if we haven't learned that from history, we have missed the whole point. I wanted you to thank you for being a part of what God's doing um, in this church. You saw some things on the screen this past Sunday. I couldn't be more excited to be a part of what this church is doing and to see how God's growing and expanding and using some of you. I had, we had a conversation in staff meeting this week. I just want to share this with you. And I asked all of our staff two questions. I said, tell me one of the things at our church that you are most excited about, and then I want you to tell me something you're most concerned about. Let's just kind of spend a little time talking about those things. And can I just tell you that across the board, one of the things that we are most excited about, it's not just the numbers, that's fantastic, but one of the things that we're most excited about is seeing that God is doing fresh new works in people, that God is growing people, that people are getting more excited about the things of God and the gospel of God and serving in incredible ways and hungry in bigger ways than I have seen in a long time, maybe ever in my ministry. So we're a part of what God is doing, and I'm glad to be living in this part of history, and I'm glad to be doing this part of history with you, and I'm glad for what God's going to continue to do in this. Be here this Sunday. Uh, we talked about the rapture this past Sunday. If I were you, even if I had vacation plans this Sunday, I'd cancel them. I mean, I would cancel them, and I would be here this Sunday. Uh, we're going to talk about the day of the Lord, what that really means, what the day of the Lord really looks like and how we understand that in light of end times events. Uh, if you have lost family or friends, you need to tell them to come and be a part of that. You need to invite them to, to be a part of what God, God is doing because it's going to be a great day. 
uh, this coming Sunday, and I'm excited about that as well. You pray for me, and then we'll, we'll break up into, into our groups. Lord, I thank you so much for tonight. I thank you for people that love you. I thank you for a church that loves you. I thank you that throughout history, God, you are sovereign, that throughout history, Lord, you are in control. So tonight as we bow before you, tonight as we just spend some time talking with you and fellowshiping with you, Lord, we're thankful um, that you have given us the guide that no matter what this era throws at us, that, Lord, we can address it by the power of the cross and by the name of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.